Marilyn Behind the Icon, a dramatic series on the life of Marilyn Monroe. Our story continues with Episode 6, Lonely Escape into Dreams. Every baby needs a dad, dad, daddy to keep her worry-free. Every baby needs a dad, dad, daddy, but where's the one for me? If he hasn't got a million, then a half will do. Every baby needs a dad, dad, daddy. Could my dad, daddy be you? Spring 1951. Marilyn talks daily with friend and columnist Sidney Skolsky. Whimsical, unpredictable, and neurotic. Skolsky suffers from depression, is a hypochondriac, and has phobias of water, cats, and dogs. He also does not drive, nor does he own a car. Instead, he enlists friends to chauffeur him around Los Angeles. Skolsky uses the counter at Schwab's drugstore on Sunset Boulevard as his headquarters to gather information for his nationally syndicated column. Marilyn is his frequent chauffeur, and he is her frequent escort. She towers over his slight stature and they seem an unlikely match. Oh, thank you for driving out to the desert with me, Sydney. I'll climb in. You've got an edition of the Examiner. Some reason? Oh, you can place it in the back seat. I stopped at Schwab's and got a copy. It has an article about me. I want to present it to my father. You're driving out to the desert, armed with proof of professional accomplishment, to gain your father's approval? Or I suppose I am. Okay. So your father lives outside Palm Springs? Not actually. He and his wife own the Red Rock Dairy in Hemet. He has several delivery routes. So what made you want to seek him out after all these years? Well, I tried once, uh, a few months ago. It was when uh, Let's Make It Legal premiered. I drove past a billboard advertising the film, and it had a huge image of me on it. I couldn't believe it. Even my name was on the billboard. Then I fantasized about my father recognizing me on the screen. Maybe he saw that I was becoming successful in pictures. I could earn his love. We uh, could actually have a relationship. So I searched through a phone book after phone book. I finally found his address and phone number. I thought after all these years, he might want to know me. So I decided to see him. Natasha Lytes went with me. So you and your acting coach drove out. And what happened? Well, before we arrived at the dairy, I got cold feet. I pictured my father sitting in his favorite chair, and the daughter he never met unexpectedly shows up on his doorstep, just like that. Well, that doesn't seem fair to him, so I decided to call him first. 
So we stopped at a phone booth and I called his number. Hello? Uh, hello? Uh, Mrs. Gifford? Yes, Mary Gifford of Red Rock Dairy speaking. This is Marilyn, Gladys Baker's daughter. Um, M- Mr. Gifford is sure to know who I am. Hello? H- hello? Hold, please. <sighs> My husband doesn't want to talk to you. He suggests you contact his lawyer in Los Angeles if you have a complaint. Do you have a pencil? No, 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 I don't have a complaint. I just want to talk to him. Won't you please tell him I just want to talk to him? Please? Uh, Dear, he isn't taking your call. No? No. You didn't even get to talk to him? I'm sorry, honey. What makes you think I want to see you now? I'm not sure he will. But this time, I'm not passing a message through his wife. I want to meet him face to face. I want him to look into my eyes. I'm not calling him. I'm not giving him an out. Ah, that's the girl. Well, if he rejects me, he'll have to reject me to my face. Well, I hope today brings you a better outcome, Marilyn. Sydney, um, maybe you'll bring me a little luck. (laughs) If not, you'll be the best company on the long drive home. Sydney waits in the passenger seat while Marilyn gets out and walks to the front door. The door opens and she steps inside. About 15 minutes later, Marilyn returns to the car. Silent and pensive, she starts the ignition and heads back to Los Angeles. So are you going to tell me what happened? What did he say? Uh, He he said, uh, listen, Marilyn, I'm married and I have children and I don't want you to start trouble for me uh, like your mother did years ago. I got the message loud and clear. I won't contact him anymore. What a louse. I'm sorry, honey. He should be proud to be your father. He should have done the right thing by your mother. He should have done the right thing back then when you were a kid. He should have done the right thing today. 
really wanted from him was to let me call him father. That he would give me the satisfaction of knowing him. He just doesn't want the world to know I'm his love child. His mistake. Anyway, thank you, sir. Thank you for being by my side. You're a good friend. I'm always here for you, Marilyn. Besides, I don't drive. What would I do without you? You are my chauffeur. My favorite chauffeur. <laughs> spring of 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt introduces a series of important bills aimed at rebuilding the country after the Great Depression and improving the quality of life for millions of Americans. These economic programs would become known as Roosevelt's New Deal. Norma Jean's mother, Gladys, is now working days at Columbia Studios and evenings at RKO Studios, saving for a deposit on a home. In October of 1933, because of the passing of the New Deal, Gladys secures a low-rate loan from the California Title Mortgage Company and purchases a six-room white bungalow on Arbol Street near the Hollywood Bowl. Happy days are here again. After the death of her mother, Della, Gladys moved from her bungalow to an apartment and visited the Bolander home on weekends. At times, Gladys took Norma Jean on the trolley to outings at Santa Monica Beach with her friends. Photographs exist of Norma Jean as a toddler in a rented striped bathing suit, playing in the sand among a large group of young adults. That spring of 1933, Norma Jean contracted an illness and Gladys took three weeks off from work to care for her at the Bolander home. It's unclear whether the illness was a case of whooping cough or another disease. Biographers' claims vary. In either case, Gladys's act of maternal devotion suggested to Ida that Norma Jean's mother might someday take permanent custody of the child. When Norma Jean recovered, Gladys took her to Catalina Island for the weekend where the child watched her mother dance with men at the landmark casino and dance hall. Gladys also took her to Gay's Lion Farm, a tourist attraction in El Monte, dedicated to the breeding, training, and exhibition of African lions. Marilyn later told actor John Gilmore, of enduring disturbing memories of the wild animals being trained in ways she considered unnatural for them, and she wished they had been left in the wild. To prepare Norma Jean for transitioning from the Bolander home to her mother's new home, she begins visiting Gladys at her apartment. 
Initially, I was frightened to leave the only home I ever knew. So, I hid in a closet on the days my mother arrived to collect me. Now that's enough, Norma Jean. Respect your mother. It's time to go for a visit with her. Come out of there. Let's go visit my apartment. Soon we'll be living together. I'm going to buy a house for us to live in, Norma Jean. It's going to be painted white and have a backyard for you to play in. She lured me out of the closet and brought me to an apartment on Afton Place in Hollywood. I used to be frightened when I visited my mother and spent most of the time in the closet of her bedroom, hiding amongst her clothes. She seldom spoke to me except to say, Don't make so much noise, Norma. She would say this even when I was lying in bed at night, turning the pages of a book. Even the sound of the pages turning made her nervous. During one of these early visits, I experienced my happiest childhood memory. <laughs> Seeing a sepia-colored photograph of Stanley Gifford in my mother's home. His pencil-thin mustache and slouching fedora hat reminded me of Clark Gable. <laughs> my mother caught me looking at the photo. Well, that's your father, Norma Jean. Charles Stanley Gifford. For well, every time I remembered the smile of the man in the photograph and his tipped hat, I felt warm and not alone. Later, I made a scrapbook of movie star portraits from magazines and uh, pasted a photograph of Clark Gable in one of the pages because he reminded me of my father's photograph, especially because of his hat and his mustache. Norma Jean also created fantasies of her father waiting for her, scolding her for not wearing her galoshes, visiting her in the hospital when her tonsils were removed, and comforting her when she was feeling ill or sad. The father in these fantasies, though, was vague and fleeting. I could not get him in my largest, deepest daydream to take off his hat and sit down. In my daydreams, I remember imagining myself becoming so beautiful that people would turn to look at me when I passed. I daydreamed of myself walking proudly in beautiful clothes and being admired by everyone and overhearing words of praise. I made up the praises and said them out loud, while imagining that someone else was saying them. I also daydreamed of working as a waitress in an elegant hotel and wearing a white uniform, and customers entering the dining room where I was serving would stop to look and uh, admire me. 
As with most adults, Marilyn's childhood memories were a bit fuzzy and distorted. Without a consistent adult to fill in the blanks and provide a narrative for her early life events, she was left alone to make sense of her disjointed memories, like pieces of a puzzle, and to draw her own conclusions. Marilyn would believe the Bolander's physical abuse led to her removal from their home at age seven. I moved in with my mother, who had furnished her three-bedroom home with a radio and a baby grand piano. I attended Selma Avenue School and took piano lessons with Marion Miller. I hope my son cheers you, Mama. I've been practicing. I want you to be proud of me. You stay there, Mama. I'll get the door. Hello, sweetheart. Hi, Auntie Grace. Mama won't stop crying. Even my piano playing won't cheer her up. I rushed over as soon as I heard. My dear Gladys, I'm so, so very sorry. My poor Jackie. My dear boy. <laughs> Was it sudden? Had he been sick? It's all Jasper's fault. Such a careless, foolish man. He was driving the car too fast through the mountains, arguing with me. Took a sharp turn. Jackie flew out of the car. His leg was very badly injured. <laughs> oh. <laughs> then his kidneys failed. Jasper catheterized him at home instead of taking him to a hospital. Dear God! <gasps> Poor Jackie, he suffered so long. <laughs> oh. How old was your boy? I have a brother. Gladys, Norma Jean doesn't know? A half-brother, Norma Jean. He lived in Kentucky with his father. My daddy? No. Dear Lord, she doesn't know. <laughs> Sweetheart, your brother Jackie had a different father. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mama. I'm sorry. Aha, uh -huh. that's a sweet hug for your Mama, Norma Jean. <laughs> I'm here with you, Mama. You still have me. I'll take care of you. You're a good little girl. <sighs> Would you go play the piano for your mama? A nice song in the memory of your half-brother Jackie. Lord, rest his soul. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Charlie Wellman broadcasting on KFWB from outside Brahman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard for the premiere of Mary Pickford's latest film, Secrets, co-starring Leslie Howard. Hundreds are lining the boulevard, here for hours, for a glimpse of Miss Pickford, whose limousine will soon arrive. 
This is so exciting, Gladys. We're finally going to see Mary Pickford in person. After all these years of cutting her films at work, we're lucky we got right up front. Worth waiting here for hours. Norma Jean, you've been such a patient little girl. Norma Jean, where are you? Oh, you found Mary Pickford's handprints. <gasps> are these her hands in the cement? Yes, it's a tradition here at the theater. Famous picture stars leave their hand and footprints here in the forecourt. Those handprints stay forever. My, my hands don't fit hers. They're too small. But someday, yours will be as big as hers. The limousine has pulled up in front of the theater. The doors are opening, and there she is, Mary Pickford, in a stunning silver gown with white fox fur and opera gloves, escorted by her dashing husband, Douglas Fairbanks, handsome in a tuxedo. Here she comes. Good evening, Mary. Good evening, Mr. Wellman. This is a marvelous night. Do you have a few words about this film for our radio listeners at home? Secrets is a great romantic saga. And this is the kind of role every actress would love to portray. I hope I prove myself all over again. Norma Jean watches in awe as Pickford and Fairbanks walk before her. She has never seen real movie stars up close and in person before. They seem magical, luminous, something out of a dream. Mary, you are one of the most successful actresses of all time. You recently won an Academy Award, and you established United Artists with D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, and your husband, Douglas Fairbanks. Doug, won't you say something to our listeners? My wife will capture your hearts in this picture, produced by our studio, United Artists. As a single parent with mounting bills, Gladys takes in boarders to supplement her income. She sublets the entire home to an older British couple and their daughter, claiming only the upstairs bedroom for herself and Norma Jean. Biographers disagree about the name of the British family who moved in. It's possible their name was Atkinson. The husband is believed to have been either George Atkinson, a stand-in for the actor George Arliss, or Murray Kinnell, also a British actor. Marilyn said it was a drastic change from the Bolanders, who forbade dancing, talking about movies and actors, or even singing, with the exception of psalms. She had difficulty adjusting to a lifestyle the polar opposite of the home where she had lived previously. Due to her strict religious upbringing, Norma Jean thought her new caregivers were going to hell and spent hours praying for their salvation. But something new was about to enter her life that would shift her understanding of religious faith and herself. On Sundays, Norma Jean accompanies her mother and attended Christian Science Church services. Gladys's preoccupation with religion had intensified attending the Christian Science Church, possibly inspired by Grace McKee's aunt, Anna Lauer, a practitioner of the faith. 
Norma Jean learns a belief system vastly different from what had become ingrained in her from time with the Bolanders, beliefs that she had known all her life. Christian science and the teachings of its founder, Mary Baker Eddy, do not acknowledge the concept of sin, but identify pain and sickness as the result of personal weakness. By the age of seven, Norma Jean coped with the harsh realities of her life by escaping into the fantasy of films of the early 1930s. While my mother worked extra shifts at Columbia and RKO Studios, she left me in the care of the British couple who were vaudeville performers. They taught me how to throw knives and juggle and dance the hula. They hosted parties for their friends in their home, and many people came and went when my mother was away at work. The couple allowed me to go to the pictures by myself. They worked hard during the week and didn't want to be bothered with a child around the house. So Saturdays and Sundays I would go to the pictures early in the morning and watch the same film again and again. I sat in the first row all day and into the night. I loved uh, anything that moved on the big screen. I didn't miss anything that happened. They told me um, to come home at night, but I couldn't tell when it got dark outside, so I usually walked home alone in the dark. In the forecourt of the Chinese theater, I'd often fit my hands and my feet into the cement prints of movie stars. Some names I knew, some I didn't. Mostly, my school shoes were too big to fit in the stars' footprints because they all wore slim, high-heeled shoes. My hands also seemed too small to fit in theirs. All in all, I, I was very discouraged. It's funny to think that my footprints are there now and all the other little girls are trying to do the same thing I did. I especially liked Jean Harlow. I had platinum blonde hair and people used to call me Toehead. I hated that and I dreamt of having golden hair until I saw her. So beautiful and with platinum blonde hair just like mine. August 1933. The movie Dinner at Eight is playing at Groman's Chinese Theater. The film has just ended. Two middle-aged women are sitting in the second row. You were laughing too, Edna. I must admit, Clarice, that Jean Harlow had me in stitches. Let's stay for the next showing. We missed a newsreel and I wanted to see that. Oh, well, hello there. Hello. I like Jean Harlow too. Well, that's nice. Are you here all by yourself? Uh-huh. Since this morning. Morning? It's almost dinner time. I can't go home yet. I have to wait till it's dark. What? Is someone coming to meet you? I can play all the parts. Watch. 
Are we going to Florida this winter, sweetheart? Well, I wouldn't count on it if I were you. Oh, Miss It's So, it's so wonderful, I have nothing to do. Just lie all day in the sun. Yes, but you've got to be awful careful so you don't get blisters. You know, my skin's terribly delicate and I don't dare expose it. <laughs> oh, wonderful! <laughs> yes, just darling. Excuse me. My goodness, you haven't had anything to eat all day, have you, dear? Thought so. Well, I have half a ham and cheese sandwich left over from lunch. Here, you take it. Thank you. What is this world coming to? Alone in my room, I would play out scenes inspired from films I saw. Rather than replay a scene, I would make up the backstory or what I believed happened after the film ended. I'd perform all the parts of both male and female. Doing this felt wonderful and it distracted me from what was going on in my life. I suppose I spent my childhood escaping into the fantasies of Hollywood. Hollywood provided me with a fantasy father, and the women on the screen provided me with role models that were more comforting than the adults around me. I only lived with my mother uh, a few months, and um, I spent much of that time play-acting as an escape. The lonely Norma Jean retreats into a fantasy world of dreams. She is shunned by the neighborhood children, quiet and distracted at school, and unable to be properly cared for at home. The only place she finds solace is on the silver screen, a world apart from her daily existence. There, on the screen, she sees a world different than hers, one where anything is possible. A world that maybe someday she will become a part of forever. November 4th, 1954. Wearing a crimson strapless gown, Marilyn attends a reception in her honor at Romanoff's restaurant on Rodeo Drive, hosted by director Billy Wilder and producer Charles Feldman for her completion of the seven-year itch. The film's rap party becomes Marilyn's introduction into the rank of 20th Century Fox's most valued stars and an official welcome into their exclusive inner circle. Life magazine covers the event, titling its photo essay, Life Goes to a Party. Actor Clark Gable is seated at Marilyn's table, 
he asks Marilyn to dance with him. Mr. Gable? Call me Clark, honey. Clark, I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I say this, because it reflects well on you. Uh, when I was a little girl growing up, I didn't have a father. Huh, you don't say. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I used to fantasize about you on the big screen. I'd pretend you were my father. Doesn't that sound silly? <laughs> That's a sweet thing to hear. Or I'd imagine you waiting for me to come home from school. When I felt ill or sad, which was most of the time, I'd imagine you comforting me. Hmm, well, it really pleases me that your thoughts about me helped you get through those years, Marilyn. I had no idea, but look who you grew up to be. Could all these people here tonight? They're here to honor you. In fact, Marilyn, all of them want to work with you. Clark, my dream would be to work with you. Well, I tell you, when I saw gentlemen prefer blondes, I told my agent that you have magic on screen. I want to work with you, too. Let's be on the lookout for a good script for both of us. Imagine. Me working with the King of Hollywood. <laughs> well, it would be an honor, Marilyn. The King and the Queen of Hollywood working together. What a great picture that would be. It would be the greatest thrill of my life. I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Clark. I feel like Cinderella who's gone to the ball and dances with the prince. Well, you're no princess. I've worked with lots of princesses. I should know. Like I said, you're the queen, Marilyn. And don't you forget it. For the facts behind the scenes portrayed in this episode, be sure to listen to our companion podcast, Norma Jean, Discovering Truths, a discussion around the historical events drawn from Marilyn's life, which we are using to create the dramatic narrative in every episode. For the complete experience of our series, visit our website at BehindTheIcon.com where you can listen to every episode and also follow the story through historical photographs, videos, and exclusive anecdotes. You can subscribe on the website to join our community and get special updates about the series. On Facebook, search Marilyn Behind the Icon and stay connected to our social posts. Subscribe to the audio series of Marilyn Behind the Icon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where you're listening now. We'd love for you to give us a review or rating if you're enjoying what you're hearing. You can also support the show and the production by checking out the offers from the advertisers and sponsors you hear in the show or find on our website. This dramatic audio series is based on the two-volume biography by author Gary Vitaco Robles titled Icon, The Life, Times, and Films of Marilyn Monroe.